Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. I'm McKay Christensen, and I'm excited you joined us today. You know, it's not unusual in the digital world of today to get an overload of news, negativity, and discouragement. And that's why it's so important to fill the gaps in your day with things that uplift and encourage and promote productive thinking. This podcast was born of the desire to help others see what they might not otherwise see in their lives, their thinking, and work to become more of who they can become. So I hope as you leave here today, you'll be encouraged and have a bit more added insight to see who you can be. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about this day, this time in your life as the start of something good. Now, childhood development researchers have long debated the year of most critical development in a child's life. Is it as an infant when you first understand the difference between animate and inanimate objects? Or is it at age five when you can project your thoughts as drawings on a piece of paper? Well, many experts agree that the age of three is perhaps the most vital year for learning and development. Why age three? Well, at age three, you begin to be capable of understanding complex ideas. Three-year-olds start to ask why. And asking why is a leap ahead cognitively as compared to naming objects or colors like you did as a two-year-old. Complex ideas begin to lay the structure for thought patterns that will affect your entire life. At age three, you begin to comprehend that there's a past or a future. It is one thing to understand that something happened, but for your mind to grasp when it happened or that has yet to happen, this is a huge jump forward in your brain development. Well, it was this way for Liz at age three she started to understand several things about her life and family. The first was at age three, she met her father for the first time when he was released from prison. And the second was that her parents were both hooked on drugs. Now, several times a day, her parents would disappear behind the locked kitchen door, spread their paraphernalia across the table, and shoot up. As a three-year-old, Liz already knew that she was already hungry, but she came to understand soon that they lived in filth. And she knew the life they lived was somehow different. Liz's mom had started using as a teenager. Her own home had been a place of anger, violence, and abuse. And her dad came from a broken home, and his father had been a violent alcoholic. And the two had met when her dad was a dealer selling her mom heroin. Now, when her mom was pregnant with Liz, she was arrested trying to falsify prescriptions. And when the police raided their home, they found bags of cocaine and pills. Her father would serve three years in prison, and her mother would get probation and the chance to keep custody of Liz. Her mother got clean for a time, but when her father returned from prison, the drugs returned with him. At age five, Liz's job was to watch for the mailman who delivered the welfare check. She would sit out on the porch and wait and watch for the mailman to arrive. Her parents always had a plan, and her dad would go over the details pacing in the apartment before the check would arrive. They were going to first stop and buy Coke or heroin, pay the electric bill, get a half pound of bologna for the kids, and buy subway tokens. As an eight-year-old, Liz's stomach always burned from hunger. 
When any money came about, her parents immediately bought drugs, leaving her alone and most days without food. Her parents would come and go several times at night trying to find a fix. And drugs were like a wrecking ball tearing through her family and life. Nothing seemed normal. Everything was out of her control and life was immensely confusing. She was put in and out of foster care, then back with her mother who was living with another man. Her mother was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. Both parents were declared HIV positive. And just after Liz finished high school, her mother died from AIDS on the day after Christmas. It took a week to locate a free funeral service. From that point on, Liz was on her own. Her father was living in a homeless shelter, so Liz would sleep in the subway station and carried most of her belongings in her backpack. Now, you would think that living on the streets and with her friends and coming from a completely dysfunctional home life and all the confusion and craziness associated with living with addicts, that Liz would have sunk further into the abyss. But something inside of her was working in her life. Liz says that as strange as it may seem, she had dreams. She had hopes for a better life. She said she had this voice in the back of her mind that we all have. And she called it the what-if voice. And the what-if voice said, what if you go to school? What if you changed your life? And she began to think of the possibilities in her life. She had lost everything and life had changed for her. But this had enabled her to realize that with this change, there were possibilities. That it could be the start of something good. Now, very few of us will ever live in the environment that Liz lived in. But we all have confusion and addictions of sorts and things beyond our control that come through our life like a wrecking ball. And it seems it moves things that we're used to and understand and we're left with things that we're not used to and don't understand. And many people in this situation freeze or let the change control their emotions and actions. They get stuck. However, there are others who, like Liz, see the change in circumstances as an opportunity to become something better, greater than before. And for whatever reason, Liz seized her opportunity. All she could think of was finishing her education. She felt that was her opportunity. So she slept on the train and went from high school to high school. Now, this was after years of being truant and at an age when most students were preparing for college, asking if these high schools would admit her. And after a host of rejections, she finally found an alternative high school in Manhattan. She threw herself into the schoolwork. And she learned there was a distinct difference between saying something and doing something. And as she did, she started to believe that she could really change her life. In high school, she got straight A's. And something about not having school for so long caused her to crave school. So during her final year, Liz was on a school trip with her class in Boston. They visited Harvard. Now, this was something that she had never dreamed of, attending Harvard. But her teacher encouraged Liz to apply. But she had no way to pay for an education like that. But with her teacher's help, she got a scholarship from the New York Times. Now, she needed to get accepted to Harvard. But homeless to Harvard was too much to expect, too much to hope for, right? While living with friends, they told her that no matter what, whether she got accepted or not, her life was going to be different. And her friend's father checked with Harvard and was told that the acceptance letter was on its way. So on a Saturday, 
in front of her friend's house. She waited on the stoop, just like she did when she was a young girl. Here she was waiting for the mailman again, this time not for a welfare check to support her parents' addiction, but rather for a letter welcoming her into a new life. Watching the mailman approach, she realized that the letter from Harvard, whatever it was going to say, would not make or break her life. She'd learned that these times in life are just the start of something good. Well, she opened the letter, and here's what it said. Dear Elizabeth, I'm delighted to inform you that the Committee on Admissions has admitted you to the class of 2000, and she would go on to attend Harvard, graduate, and earn a master's degree from Columbia University. Eventually, a movie would be made about her life. Its title? Homeless to Harvard. Now, here's the thing. I've talked with a lot of people over the last year, and it seems that the chaos and confusion caused by COVID shutting down our lives for a time, a hostile political environment, fear about vaccinations or masks or being in public, products out of stock, supply chain issues worldwide, restricted travel, schooling from home, the addiction to negative thinking that seems to prevail, social media, and so many things have resulted in a life we aren't used to or understand. And like Liz, in these confusing times that we don't understand, we have a choice. We can succumb to the things beyond our control and let worry and anxiety dictate our daily walk, or we can see this time in our life as the start of something good. Now, is that really possible? Have good things started in times of economic chaos, for example? They have and do all the time. In 2009, in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression, companies like Uber, Venmo, and Strava were started. Venmo was started by two University of Pennsylvania roommates who weren't thinking about how bad the economy was. They were focused on the possibilities ahead of them. And the same goes for you and me. Are your school-aged children stuck at home? It could be the start of something good as you get more involved in their education. Confused with all the social media blabber about vaccines and masks and endless debate about what could happen? It could be the start of something good as you decide to take control of your own actions and thinking in life and develop habits that can insulate you. You know, if you look around nowadays, there are so many people with a victim mentality. The victim mentality rests on three key beliefs. Bad things happen and will keep happening. Things beyond my control are to blame. And any efforts to create change will fail, so there's no point in trying. And it seems that those with a victim mentality seem to wallow in negativity and tend to force it upon others in an attempt to find company to join them in their misery. Now, trust me, I understand that it's easy to be frustrated with what's happening around us and not clear at times as to how to act and what to do. Trust me, life has many ways of testing us either by having nothing happen at all or by having everything happen at once. And it's easy to get scared or worried. And during these times, it's tough to explain what's going on in your head when you don't even understand it yourself. But here's the truth. Worrying won't stop the bad stuff from happening. It just keeps you from enjoying the good. And anxiety is a thief. It robs us so much of our mental capacity and our personal power and our ability to see things as they really are. But it's exactly during these anxiety-ridden times that we have a choice. 
to see ourselves as a victim or a victor. A victim tends to blame others or circumstances for the unhappiness they're feeling. A victor understands they can decide their moods, character, and when to act. The victim focuses on outward pressures, while a victor focuses on inward confidence. Someone with a victim mentality only sees the problems around them. And on the other hand, someone with a victor mentality will look within themselves to find solutions and carry on. And the truth is, almost everyone can make the change from victim to victor. Victims are just stuck in the stories they've been telling themselves, and usually they're not the author. But once these victims can see more clearly and beyond their singular point of view, they can begin to author, to write, their own story. And here's what I believe. You were meant to be a force for good, even in confusing times. There's so much good waiting inside you, and you can and will do remarkable things in this life. And the minute you give in to the desire to do good and choose the optimistic view, you'll start something good, something powerful in your life. You have so much to give. You have so much to contribute to those in your family and on your team and in your life. And I believe you may be right where you can and should be to start something good today in your life. So, how do you, in confusing times, be your true self and stay confident and act in a way contrary to the victim mentality around you? Well, in the investment industry, there are market investors who are called contrarians. Contrarian investing is an investment style in which investors purposefully go against prevailing market trends by selling when others are buying and buying when most investors are selling. So here's the idea. Let's say that Apple stock becomes popular. And as a result, lots of people start to buy Apple stock. And when there's lots of buyers because of its popularity, the price goes up because it's more in demand. Now, nothing about Apple profits or the company has changed, but the herd mentality artificially inflates Apple stock price. Contrarians recognize this, and when the price is artificially high, they sell. And when Apple reports its next earnings or the market gets jittery, the herd sells Apple stock and the contrarians profit because they are ahead of the curve. Likewise, it's possible and profitable to act independent of the herd mentality and to have the confidence to start something good when others are magnifying their victimhood. If those in your digital network are negative, be positive. If you're afraid, be brave. If you're confused by what's happening around you, act. Action stops confusion. But going against the herd or the crowd isn't always easy. And when you're standing apart from everyone else, it can be uncomfortable at first. So, how do you do that? Well, there is great power in possibility. When you open your eyes to the possibilities of life, like Liz, you get the courage to act despite circumstances. Now, like Liz, we all have a choice. We can sit and wait for the mailman to deliver the welfare check that keeps us stuck in the same life of confusion. Or we can wait for that acceptance letter to a new life. You get to choose. But don't let the addictions of negativity and powerlessness or social media rob you of the chance to begin something great today. 
Your life isn't dictated by who is in the White House or the prevailing opinion or even by potential criticism that may come your way. It's your choice, and you can act independent of anyone else. Perhaps it's time to mute, block, unfollow, and unsubscribe to anything that takes your thinking out of your control. Perhaps leave behind social media that brings negativity and waste into your life. You know, the scripture says, if your eye offends, pluck it out. Now, this is extreme, of course, but the principle holds. It's better to lose an eye than to let it infect the whole body. The same goes for some social media. To start something good in your life, you need your mind back. You need your time back. And right now, social media may be stealing both. So pare down what you use. Follow what is necessary, but break with the rest. And while social media can seem harmless, mindless, and fun, it actually has significant effect on our brain. You see, whenever you log on to your favorite apps, dopamine signals in your brain increase. And these neurotransmitters are associated with pleasure. And when you experience more dopamine after using social media, your brain identifies this activity as a rewarding one that you ought to repeat. It's funny because even if the content of social media is negative, because you've established the addiction of getting a shot of dopamine when you go to social media, you go there again and again. Even if that very social media causes anxiety, your brain pushes you to return to it again and again. And studies have proven the way your brain engages in this positive reinforcement is similar to other addictions. Because once the feel-good dopamine wears off, you'll go back to the source, in this case social media, for more. And soon the barrage of opinions and confusion and negativity becomes part of our thinking and being. You can't be exposed to something for very long without that something becoming part of you. You know, years ago, we had a favorite piece of furniture, but my wife and I, we both hated the color of paint on the wood. So one day we decided it would be a great project to refinish this piece of furniture. We soon realized that the only way to create a new color was to strip off the existing paint on the wood. Now, it wasn't easy. We had to apply a nasty solution to the stained surfaces, then scraped off the old paint. And then we had to sand the wood to remove all the paint and discolored surfaces. But what we found underneath was a beautiful wood grain. And surprised by the beauty of the wood, when we applied a stain to highlight that grain, it was amazing. And we were impressed at the beauty of this piece of furniture once we stripped it of the unnecessary paint and let the wood underneath shine. Now, the same goes for you and me. I suspect these past months have put some color on us and our thinking that paint our mindset in ways that really don't represent who we are. We need to have that paint stripped so that our true selves can shine through. And when you decide that this time is the start of something good, you'll take off a layer of anxiety. And when you put on your contrary power and choose to be a victor rather than a victim, you scrape off the undesirable colors of your life. And when you declare your intention to move in a new direction, you not only make it easier, but you smooth out your thinking. Soon, you've become something very beautiful, happy, and free from anxiety and inspired by a new look, by a new view. So 
making this day the start of something good, it's an everyday mindset. It's a level of confidence that because you're starting something good, you have a reason to be hopeful. And the truth is that you are happier when you're hopeful. Sometimes you have to get out of the way of yourself so that you can be yourself. So let me ask you a simple question. If you stripped away all of your worries and concerns and dropped the confusion that's all around you, what possibilities are waiting for you? Are you a teacher dealing with the ups and downs of mask policies and the effect of our current way of life on children's behavior? Well, perhaps by showing students what it means to be optimistic about life and the future is the start of something good that can refine not only your own character, but that of your students. Are you a business owner and your team has been getting stuck in their own worries lately? The market changes of late have caused them to freeze? Well, how could you make this the start of something good? Perhaps you can demonstrate how taking action confidently changes everything. And that confident action is contagious. And your team will be acting while others around them are frozen, giving you and them the advantage in the marketplace. Perhaps you're tired of worry and sick of feeling anxious and ready to do something about it. I will tell you, if you are, then it's time to start something good. You can always unfollow and unsubscribe from your negative thoughts and from fear and worry. And when you begin to act with confidence, you begin to write the next chapter, the, the best chapter of your life story. Interestingly, when we feel powerful, we feel free and control and safe. And as a result, we are attuned to opportunities more than we are threats. We feel positive and optimistic, and our behavior is largely unrestricted by social pressures. But on the other hand, powerlessness activates a psychological alarm system of sorts. This means that we're more attuned to threats than to opportunities, and we feel generally anxious and pessimistic, and we're susceptible to social pressures that inhibit us and keep us from starting something good. You learned this behavior from childhood. When you are deciding whether or not to do something, like raise your hand in class to answer a question, you focus on one of two things, either the possible benefit of the action or the possible cost of the action. And if you only focused on the costs, you likely don't raise your hand to begin with. The most significant result of realizing you are not powerless is the activation of all the functions that anxiety takes from us, robs from us. The sense of being a victim and the anxiety that results from it undermine what psychologists call executive functions. Higher order cognitive tools such as reasoning, task flexibility, and attention control, all of which are critical to coping well in challenging situations. And research has shown that when we're anxious, we lose important skills such as reasoning and flexibility and attention control. Anxiety also wallops working memory, our ability to recall information and integrate it with new data. And I believe anxiety robs us of inspiration. Anxiety diminishes so many important skills. We become less of ourselves, and we also become more focused only on ourselves. I see this in our world today. And this fact has been proven by research. For example, in a series of experiments led by social psychologist Andy Todd, 
participants had to identify the spatial location of an object. Now, beforehand, some participants had been primed to be anxious and others had not. The participants that had been primed to feel anxious were significantly worse at accurately identifying the location of an object when they were asked to do it from another's perspective. In another experiment, participants viewed a photo of a person sitting at a table and looking at a book to the photographed person's left. Later, when asked to recall which side of the table the book was on, anxious participants were more likely to describe the book's location from their own perspective on the right. The group that wasn't primed to be anxious described the location of the book from the perspective of the person in the photo on the left. You see, when we're anxious, we lose our empathy, our perspective, and our ability to relate to other people. Conversely, research is proving that when we're powerful and free from anxiety, it acts literally as a buffer to negative emotions. It thickens our skin against judgment and rejection and stress. In a series of studies at the University of Berkeley, students were primed to be powerful or powerless. Then they were asked to act in a social situation, solve brain teasers, and in a separate study to measure how long they can endure physical pain by holding their hand in a bucket of ice water. In each of these three studies, powerful students acted, thought, and endured more than the powerless prime students. As Maya Angelou said, stand up straight and realize who you are, that you tower over your circumstances. During the Vietnam War, Commander Jeremiah Denton served as a U.S. Naval pilot. And partway through his service, he was leading a 28 aircraft bombing mission over North Vietnam. He and his navigator were forced to eject from their plane when it was damaged by one of their own bombs exploding after it was released. Both men were quickly captured and taken prisoner. And Denton was held for almost eight years, most of which was spent in solitary confinement. He was part of the Hanoi March, in which 52 American prisoners were paraded for two miles through the streets of Hanoi and beaten by North Vietnamese citizens. Imagine. For eight years, unable to talk to the other prisoners because it was forbidden, living in solitary confinement, beaten, abused, and unable to have any type of personal freedom, you'd be justified to feel powerless in such a situation, right? But not Commander Denton. At one point during his stay, he was forced to participate in a televised press conference by his North Vietnamese captors. And during the broadcast, he was forced to read an untrue statement about his treatment as a prisoner. As he read the statement, he blinked his eyes, pretending the lights were too bright. But his blinking was really Morse code, which spelled out the letters T-O-R-T-U-R-E, torture. Denton learned to act despite his circumstances, and it was his way of doing something good. And after his return from Vietnam, he would go on to serve a remarkable career in the Navy and eventually be elected as a U.S. Senator. So here's a simple suggestion. Take a few minutes today to make a list of how you could make this time today the start of something good in your life. Just list the possibilities. Just by making the list and considering the options, you'll find power return to your thinking and being. It is worth the time to pause and make a list. 
Years ago, I learned a lesson when speaking to large groups. I would often speak too fast, moving from one point to another. Then I learned that slowing down is a power move. Speaking slowly and taking pauses and occupying the space when I'm speaking brought power to my work. You see, listeners need a pause now and then to ponder a point. And importantly, I also had time when I was speaking slowly to be inspired to listen. And this same thing will happen to you as you slow down to write the ways you can start something good right now in your life. The pause will give you power to be inspired. It will give you power to find out what's most important. As Shenryu Suzuki says, the most important thing to find out is what is the most important thing. Now, at the start of something good, it doesn't mean that you have to do something new. Perhaps the start of something good is restarting your business efforts. The start of something good means you decide to be a person of optimism. Perhaps your start is a return to school or a return to daily exercise. And most important, whatever the start of something good is for you, once you've determined what that is, get started. It doesn't matter if you start small. In fact, that's how most starts start, small, and that's okay. But the minute you get started, optimism will fill your thoughts. And soon it will be evident in your actions and your language as well. Optimism is healthy, attractive, and contagious. So if you're trying to lead a team, just watch what happens when you put on optimism in the confusing times of today. Your team will soon do the same. And this works in families as well. Optimism attracts. You know, in a recent study published in the Journal of Clinical Practice and Mental Health, researchers showed that optimism gives people power to deal properly with negative information build their personal coping mechanisms, and improve their health and quality of life. So how do you put on optimism? Well, it really is a conscious decision to think differently. And by doing so, you literally rewire your brain. So when you read or hear or think negative or discouraging information or thoughts, pivot to the optimistic view. At first, it will seem forced, but soon it will be natural. Now, positive thinking doesn't mean that you ignore life's stressors. You just approach hardship in a more productive way. Constructing an optimistic view of life will reduce feelings of sadness and depression and anxiety, and it'll open your thinking to more inspiration. It'll give you strength to cope in difficult times and to be the start of something good for years to come. It very well could be that as you look back on these times, which may be difficult and confusing. If you choose today to be the start of something good, you will look back with fondness on the day you made that decision. So as we end today, remember, in the midst of this time of confusion, start something good. It'll remove the anxiety and fear in your life, and it'll bless your life and allow you to leave behind your victim mentality. Strip away the things in your life that bring you fear and negativity and let the real you shine through. Slow down a bit to identify the possibilities in front of you. And when you do, you'll find how to start something good. And remember, you don't have to start big, just start. And I'm certain that you'll find the blessings in life that anxiety has taken from you. Thanks for being here today. 
And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. Thank you.